Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. And we're off! There we are! Um, uh, we're, we're, we're back. Um, uh, we were having a genuine little chat about the future, the immediate future. What, what are we up to this weekend coming up? And, uh, and uh, there's no time, no time for love, Dr. Jones, because we have started another five-star family fun-sized fan club. What um, I like is every week we basically sit and watch the clock tick over to the top of the hour before we can start. And yet, even though we'll be watching, like, the 59 for a whole minute, always takes us by surprise. Always. always. It's surprises me how often it catches us by surprise, in a way, Nathaniel. Uh, it's almost like it's our USP. Um, so, we are here. This is me, everyone's favourite broadcaster. Um, live, not live, pre-recorded on a Wednesday, but as live from Camp COVID. Uh, my name's Nick, and this is... Nathaniel Metcalf. And you're listening to Nick and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club. Fan club. Um, yeah. First rule of fan club is Tell your friends. Just tell your friends, tell your friends about fan club, tell your friends about fan club. Second rule. Second rule. Um second rule. This one might catch you by surprise, but, but it's uh, not if you're a long time listener, first time caller. Um but the second rule of fan club is please. For the love of God, tell your friends about fan club, because oh, it's it's beginning. Lockdown has really started to get to me <laughs> in the last few weeks, but this week particularly has been grueling. So I find at the moment there's a sort of sense that I sort of feel quite restless. And yet I also feel like I don't want to leave the house. I'm totally conflicted. I don't like things opening up and I don't like things going back to normal in a way. But I also want to get out there and do things. So I'm, I'm very conflicted. I guess well, I think everyone's sort of in a similar boat. Well, I live in a, a block of flats and I don't have a garden, but what I do have is a roof terrace. And I went out on my roof terrace for the first time in four months. And, um, and I've got to say, it, it has the most amazing view. Like, it's an amazing view, right? You can see all of London, and it's quiet, right? And, like, London is quiet. And um, it was like, really, and I couldn't believe I hadn't been up there in four months. You know, I could have, I had it, I had it, not at my back door, but I had it as an option to me to get out and see the, the big sky, and, you know, uh, I've been complaining all this time that my sky isn't working and all I needed to do was stick my head out the window. <laughs> and um, uh, and I went up there and I was, I was out there um, uh, with a friend for like um, a few hours. And then what happened was it got to about seven o'clock at night and then um, uh, all of uh, my neighbours came up and started using the roof terrace. And then it turned into sort of like a party and I got very sort of like aware that uh, it, we may as well have been like shoulder to shoulder at a pub and I was just like oh I, I don't don't know about this and then um, uh, that's like when we were starting I was sort of like asking you is it muggy or am I ill 
I think I've already had it, but my, 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 my throat is a bit sore. And I don't know why that would be. Um, so I'm all right. I'm fine. I'm fine. But it was just sort of like, oh, I don't know why I don't go out here. And then it got crowded. And I was like, oh, this is why I don't go out here, I think. Mm. Um, and they said that they'd been doing it the whole time. And I was like, oh, well, I never got an invite. <laughs> um, but it was the first time I'd met most of them, uh, which, is, which is fine. Which is, I'm allowing. Reasonable. reasonable. Absolutely, absolutely reasonable. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I feel like uh, we're in a bit of no man's land where we're allowed to do certain things and then they're saying face masks are back on 24th of July and you go, well, why not just say straight away? Why not just say now? Because if you know that we're going to have to put face masks on, from the 24th of, I think it's the 24th of July. If you know we've got to put face masks back on at some point, just say, just do it now, guys. Um, I feel like it's kind of like lockdown was relaxed and then it's like, but we are probably definitely going to go back right into lockdown again at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know where, I don't know where we all stand on it, but, um, but I've been quite productive today. So, um, so. Yeah, I don't feel like I've been productive. I feel like, um, the bit before we do this, I find is a bit of a no man's land of, uh, of what to do in my day. Sort of well, dead centre. I'm not sleeping at all at the moment. I'm not drinking at the moment. And, um, uh, and I, I guess uh, this is a top, a top tip. But I guess one of the reasons why I drink is to uh, knock myself out. And I was, I'm not drinking and so it's kind of like, um, I get to, I'm tired. I was just telling you, I'm tired. And I get to, I get like really sleepy at about midnight and then I get into bed and I'm all ready to fall asleep. And I fall asleep about half uh, 12. And then I wake up wide awake at sort of like 105. And then that's me for the rest of the night. Mm. Um, so normally I sort of like say, what have you been a fan of this week? But what I'll say is what, what I've been a fan of, Nathaniel, it's when I'm wide awake, <laughs> lying in my bed, not knowing what to do with myself, what I do is um, I've started um, furiously listening to uh, sound effects. Of, what's, that, what's that thing? You know when Jordan Brooks came in and he said, I listen to... ASMR. ASMR. So I think I mentioned it briefly, but um, they do these eight-hour ASMR um, uh, YouTube videos um, of uh, a thunderstorm on Jurassic Park. Did I tell you about this? No. So you listen to a thunderstorm. Like, so when I was, when I was growing up, right, uh, my, I, I would say, even more than the film, my favourite book of all time is maybe Jurassic Park, right? It's that, it's that real sort of like crossover sort of uh, book uh, between... Uh, um, an old-fashioned book like Robinson Crusoe and a very modern book like Jurassic Park, which is sort of like a science fiction book. And, um, and I used to listen to the abridged audio tape read by John Hurd, who was the dad out of uh, Home Alone and uh, Julie Roberts' boyfriend in Pelican Brief. Mm. And, uh, and he's always a very nice, likeable man. Yeah. Uh, so he reads Jurassic Park, it's abridged, and it starts off with sound effects of kind of like uh, the rain coming down on a corrugated iron roof. And I always just found it very comforting and relaxing when I was like 
a little 13, 14 year old boy who was panicking about going to school again on Sunday because because uh, I'd get bullied on Monday morning. Right. So I was, I'd listened to Jurassic Park to sort of like calm me down. And I found that they have like, these um, these eight hour ASMR um, ASMR mm-hmm. uh, tracks where it's basically it's as if you're in the Land Rover outside the T-Rex paddock. Right. And you're sat in the rain and you're broken down and you can just hear rain pouring on the roof of your car. And then there's thunder and lightning, like occasionally, but not like not like close by, but like just just in the distance. And then every so often you can hear a Brachiosaurus just go. There's not an element of threat to it that keeps you awake, though. No, it's so it's okay. so relaxing, but I got, but I've got to the point now where I'm a bit like, oh, I've done that. So then, what I started listening to was um, uh, a thunderstorm on a creaky old pirate ship. <laughs> and so you're on it's eight hours. It's a black screen, so you can sleep, and it's just the sound effects of like this ship that's creaking with a thunderstorm. And I listened to that for ages, and I just thought like the. Uh, the thunder and lightning was so sort of like uh, random and sporadic and the creak uh, with the creaking as well that I just thought, well, maybe I don't need the thunder and lightning. So I Googled another one and then I just found like just being on a pirate ship. So you just hear the ocean. So then I did that for a bit, but then the creaking really got to me. So then I just listened to the ocean. Um, and then I just realized, well, there's absolutely, no, I just can't, I can't, I can't, can't sleep. Especially, I've got a fan as well. So there's thunder and lightning on a pirate ship and the fan keeps blowing at me. And it's like I'm under it's a piece of... It's inaccurate as well. Well, yeah, but you imagine it's the wind, you know? You okay. imagine it's like you're under a piece of sailcloth on a pirate ship and you're just trying to keep warm overnight. Um, very exciting and exhilarating, but maybe too stimulating because then you end up just staying... And so then what I did was I found um, uh, spaceship noises of... Um, <laughs> Of a um, of the sleeping quarters on the, st- the USS Enterprise from the next generation. Oh, yeah. I can imagine that is quite calming. Does it have like a low hum? It's just this low hum, but every so often there's like these little beeps, and then it does make you think that your phone is going off. Yes. And then you remember, oh no, I put my phone on silent, but that's just enough to get you out of it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So, but if you concentrate really hard on the pirate ship, it does actually feel like you're on a pirate ship. A little bit. So there is that. But I've been a fan of that this week. But, I mean, I, it, hasn't, it hasn't helped. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I've been awake just listening to it. It's just on a loop, really, for eight hours. And you know how, much, how long you've been to sleep? So I put it on and, um, and then uh, and I'll fall asleep. And then I'll wake up and I'll look at how much of the video has gone. And it's 45 minutes. And then I'm up for yeah. the rest of the night. So I don't know. Um, I guess my body will adapt again to uh, to being sober. So um, so maybe maybe I'll just be. Uh, I just need to do more. I guess just be more active. Maybe more physical. But it's out there if you want it. And I didn't really know what it was when Jordan Brooks came on to talk about it. But now I do know what it is. And now I am also a fan. So. Yeah, I can. I can see. I can see. It's probably a comfort in it. I uh, I'm trying to think of things I'd quite like. Um, I quite, I, you know, I quite like having my hair cut, although I haven't since uh, lockdown, even though I'm allowed to. I, I find those sounds probably quite soothing. I hate, sort of snippy. I hate having my hair cut. 
I mean, everyone was, uh, you know, it's died down a bit, but everyone was posting their haircut pictures when they were in lockdown. It's gone like, I've always cut my own hair. Um, except for when I, my girlfriend was a uh, hairdresser. Uh, and then she cut my hair because she found what I did to my hair disgusting. But, <laughs> I think it's more that, though. I think it's more that when you get your hair washed or something in the hair, just quite like that. I hate it. I guess it's more like having, like, a head massage or something. No, I hate it. I want to get out of there as soon as possible. Which I've never, ever got what I wanted out of a haircut, uh, of a hairdresser's. I've always gone in and just said, uh, uh, short back and sides and a bit off the top. And then I come out and I go, that's not what I wanted. No, I never really know what the vocabulary is in a hairdresser's like I never know you kind of want to say like this but like a few months ago or um like like not like a bit not too not too short but not shit please that's what you want to say something like that and you come out and it is shit and you're just like oh that's the one thing I specified on and you've messed that up (laughs) thank god it wasn't more specific um I yeah, I just find that it's just um, I, I, I'm I'm always too embarrassed to ask for what I want, and to like bring a magazine with me and go. I'd like to look like this guy, because you just go. They'll go like, you mean your hair, right? And you'd be like, yeah, 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 yeah. Because we can't do anything about your fat face and body. And you go, no, I appreciate that. Just the hair, <laughs> just uh, just do something with the hair, and then they'll go, all right. But like, you know, you you still won't look like him though, right? You'll just yeah. have a haircut. I mean. I had to, I went in and I had, because I had quite long hair at the time, and um, I went in, and Johnny Depp had quite long hair at the time. This was 10 years ago. I was like, I'd like a haircut like that, please. And they did it. It looked all right when I was in front of the mirror. And then as soon as I walked out, the wind blew, and my hair just went into sort of like this mushroom shape. And then it was just, it was such a bad look. I hated myself. I hated myself more than if I'd have just had long hair. Do you ever see people in films and think, oh, they've got cool hair? Like, some of my favourite, like, haircuts. Well, one of my favourite haircuts, I think, is Johnny Depp's hair in the film Ed Wood. Really like that. That's, that's interesting, because Johnny Depp has lots of intre- like amazing haircuts. Mm. But that one is sort of like the most classic haircut out of all of them. It's long and swept back and sort of like brill creamed almost. Yeah? Mm. That's kind of like, that's like very different. I would say like, oh, I like Johnny Depp's hair in Once Upon a Time in Mexico. We still like the same guy's hair, but in completely different styles. Yeah. You go in and you say, I'd like my hair like Johnny Depp's and you come out and you look like the Mad Hatter. You're like, no! Come out like Willy Wonka. No thanks, that's not what I meant. I was watching a lot of Steve, Steve Coogan this week, so I'm basically talking like uh, Duncan Thicket. Um, uh, but I'll tell you what, though, I noticed something. I watched The Expendables this week, oh, yeah. and, um, and Mickey Rourke is in it. Um, okay. Now, Expendables, I think, is one of the uh, worst mainstream movies that ever released at a cinema. Like it's it's absolutely terrible. And Mickey Rourke, they were so happy to get Mickey Rourke. He's not officially one of the Expendables. I can go into the Expendables, but that's not really my point. Um, but he's this guy called Tool, and he owns a car shop called Tools, or it's a tattoo parlor motorbike shop called Tools. And whenever any of the Expendables are sort of like riding their motorbikes, they all park up underneath this sign that says Tools, and you're like. Yeah, 
we know because <laughs> it's, it's it's sort of pathetic but um mickey walker's got this really cool hair in it and i noticed for the first time that he's got the same hair that he has in iron man 2 so basically he was available for a day and he came along and he filmed all of his scenes and the expendables is basically it's a exercise in um uh, schedule management right mm -hmm. so there's all these stars but none of them are really available at the same time so it's meant to be like a men on a mission film like predator but because none of them are available at the same time they go off on these little um, sub kind of uh, missions where it's just alone and they jason stayed them for like half an hour and then uh, it's Stallone in a car with Jet Li uh, having, a, having a chat. And you go, you know, Jet Li is like one of the most incredible martial artists of all time. And English is not his first language or his strong point. And you basically, to get him in your film, rather than writing this amazing martial arts sequence, you've done a dialogue sequence where you're sat in a car. It's like, it's, it's crazy. And so there's Mickey Rourke comes in and he's like finishing off Stallone's tattoo. And uh, he has this absolutely nonsensical monologue about uh, tattooing a spider's web on Jason Statham's skull and drawing like a Charlotte's web coming out of his ear. And then you've got all these reaction shots of Stallone sort of like going, yeah, 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 like, um, like around your, you know, around his head, right? And then you've got Statham like laughing. But Mickey Rourke hasn't said anything that's particularly funny. It's just this absolutely bonkers little monologue about Charlotte's web. And it's just like this real weird tangent. And you go, well, why did they leave that in the film? And the reason is clearly, now that I'm watching it 10 years after the fact, is that Mickey Rourke turned up for a day. They filmed all of his close-ups. Let's shoot him out. Let's just, let's get all the Mickey Rourke footage we can. And it was all unusable. But when he'd left, they were just like, we've got to make this work. So they just had all these reactionary shots of... Stallone kind of like going along with his monologue and Jason Statham going, yeah, 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 like come, the spider's coming out my ear. Like, 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 yeah, it's, um, I mean, I could talk about Expendables f for longer than the Expendables. Well, uh, of an interesting thing, one of the films I watched this week <laughs> was Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Um, and I think that is another great example of that. But I sort of think it does it brilliantly. It's that thing where you look at it and go, no one's in the same bit. It's like every, every, it's all two shots, it's all reverse shots. And you go, it's because they're not there on the same day. It's like Cheech Marin never met Johnny Depp. That's what it feels like. Well, but they're in loads yeah. of scenes together where they're the opposite sides of a table. And you go, it's just plain that they've got Johnny Depp in for like four days. You've got Antonio Banderas in for like 15 days. You've got um, Salma Will Hayek in for a, a couple of days. Willem Dafoe's in it. And um, he spends half the film with his face bandaged up. Mm. And you go, well, that's not Willem Dafoe. Yeah, <laughs> weirdly, that's the bit I've always assumed wasn't Willem Dafoe. Robert Rodriguez says, weirdly, that actually is still him. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. He says, um, I, think, I think they did it on purpose in case it was going to be one of those things where he couldn't do it. But it's right. like, he's, I think Robert Rodriguez, well, watching that film, and it's a film that I've always felt was a bit of a, like, I love Desperado, and I like Once Upon a Time in Mexico, but it's, and it's probably about the third time I've seen it, and it's the first time watching it that I was really like, I really like this, actually, and partly that's why. And I think he's a really inspiring filmmaker, and he's so enthusiastic, and it struck me that the way he makes films is a way that I wish I was more like that, because it's like, 
it's almost like everything that he's coming up against would be disastrous in any other film of someone saying, oh, so-and-so broke their leg or something. And he would just go, it's fine. It's fine. There's no, there's no, he's no, there's no worries about him. He's so kind of laid back about it all. Yeah, but I do sort of think that um, when he started doing CGI, it kind of, um, yeah. Um, like El Mariachi, I think it was incredible. And there's something about watching films with subtitles where you just give them the benefit of the doubt. And any old shit can become art house because it's got subtitles. And um, El Mariachi is basically that. It's kind of like he filmed it on tape, um, edited it on uh, tape to tape. Uh, it costs, production-wise, it costs $7,000. There's an amazing book called Rebel Without a Crew. Yeah, um, uh, it's an incredible book, and uh, it's basically how Robert Rodriguez, to raise funds to make El Mariachi, he, he sold his uh, body to medical science, <laughs> and they did loads of tests on him. And I think he met one of the stars for the film in... Yeah, he meets the guy who's the villain, who when he gets there, there's a guy there, he says, who looks a bit like... He said he saw this guy, and he's like a young guy who, who kept thinking, he looks like Christopher Walken. And then a few days later, apparently, when he'd see him about, go, do you know what, it's not Christopher Walken. He looks more like James Spader. And then he went, wait, if this guy looks like Christopher Walken and James Spader, he'd be the best villain in my film. <laughs> they just cast him because he thought he looked like two, two different actors. It's such an amazing story about how he made that. And he, yeah. was, 20, and he was 22, I think. Yeah, and, I think so. Um, uh, yeah, and it's great. And then um, Desperado... And he filmed... He, uh, Robert Rodriguez, in between making that and Desperado... Um, well, Rodriguez directed the scene in Pulp Fiction with Quentin Tarantino in it. Oh, really? So when Quentin Tarantino was in front of the camera, Robert Rodriguez came over and he, and he took over uh, directing those bits for him. Uh, and then a lifelong friendship was made. But then, so, Desperado is so... is such an amazing... I think that was 12 million. So it was a huge step up, but it was kind of like, it's such sort of like an exercise in kind of real choppy, um, uh, practical effects work and stunt work and wire work. And it's, it's 12 million, but it doesn't feel like a Hollywood no. production. I know whatever it was, he asked for more and got it. With <laughs> the idea that his big sort of play to get a career in Hollywood with Desperado was going to be that he was going to give them change. That was always his thing in his head. Well, well like, he'd, he'd, they'd give him a budget and he'd go, oh, yeah, and here's two million back, so I didn't need it. Well, and everyone would be like, wow. They, when they were offering him money for stuff, they said, what do you want? We'll give you anything. And he said, well, do you know what? I don't actually know how to write a script. So could you give me, like, the, the, the best action scripts that you've got? And they said, what do you want? And he said, well, I want whatever, whatever, and Evil Dead 2. And so he read the script for Evil Dead 2 so he could work out how to write a script. So it's kind of like, which is why it's so disappointing that when Bruce Campbell turns up in From Dust Till Dawn to Texas Blood Money, <laughs> that it's um, a film within a film, two-minute cameo at the beginning where he gets killed straight away. And you go, you could have made him the lead. You could have made him the lead. And you could have had, you're a fan. And you could have, you're a fan of, it's the second time he's got stitched on doing the straight-to-video straight to sequel. You know, at the end of Dark Man, spoiler alert, it's Bruce Campbell. Liam Neeson turns into Bruce Campbell, puts on a Bruce Campbell mask and runs off. And then when they make the sequels that were direct-to-video, um, it ends up being Arnold Vosloo. And you go, that's, that's a... I like Arnold Vosloo, but it's a step down. You could have had 
Darkman sequels that he'd already set up with Bruce Campbell in. And when they did the From Dust Till Dawn ones, it's kind of like, oh, this is... Yeah. So the thing is, I love Salma Hayek so much in Desperado. I find it unacceptable that she's in Once Upon a Time in Mexico for such a short amount of time. And the other thing is kind of like, he was like, this is my epic. You know, this is my, this is my epic spaghetti western. I've done kind of like my fist full of dollars and I've done my few dollars more and now I'm doing my good, the bad and the ugly and I'm calling it Once Upon a Time in Mexico, right? Okay, fine, sure, okay. Um, and Once Upon a Time in the West is like this three-hour epic and it's incredible. And Once Upon a Time in Mexico is like 98 minutes. Yeah. It's really short. It's... Sh okay, well, I think it's 98, you think it's 100... Fuck it, we'll call it 99. Right? <laughs> but it's, um, it's sort of like, I just, I just think it was kind of like, it was not what I was, I think, hmm, out of all of his films, including the Spy Kids movies, I think that that is the one I've seen the least. I think it's worth a revisit. One of the, something I think I did get all the way through is just like, it's, the Johnny Depp character that's set up is a really great idea. And it's a really fun fun idea and they set him up for a spin-off movie yeah yeah so it hasn't arrived really but it's, it came about because um um they were talking about doing it like a sequel to desperado and antonio banderas kind of off the back of things like desperado had become really popular and it just happens he happened to be talking to him one day i think after the film in spy kids and um um i think in conversation banderas mentions that the film he was going to do has just sort of fallen apart. He goes, oh, so I'll be doing that now. And so Rodriguez almost decides over a weekend, oh, then we'll do this. We'll do the new um, Desperado movie. And he's like, oh, can I see a script? And he's like, can I give you a Monday? And then just spent the weekend right there. <laughs> just tried to... But then like that, you've, once he's got the script and he sends it to the studio and he gets the budget, after that, it's totally like... It is kind of made up as it goes along. And it's all sort of remarkable at how well it holds together, really. Even though it feels like, like you were saying with Expendables, it feels very choppy. And you can tell people are only sort of shown up for a couple of days. And yet it just feels like it's, it's got this sort of almost enthusiasm to it that keeps it going. Yeah. And I think that's him. He's got this such great... Like if someone says, oh, well, I can't do it. I can only do three days. He's like, so Selma Hayek um, gets asked to do it. And she's like, oh, it's unbelievable. I've been waiting for you to do this film for years and then it was when she was in that film Frida so she like produced it and she was so involved in it and was just like I, I can't do it this is like the worst time you could have asked me to do it and then he goes all oh, right well this one isn't really the sequel then this one is the one after the sequel so you're going to be in flashbacks to the film we haven't made yet and it's it's that idea and he's like going oh right well then and it's like okay well we need to kill you off then in the first um the first sort of 10 minutes and then, then we can have the rest of the movie but this is a guy who's making movies now rather than he's making passion projects he's sort of like right uh, i'm going to do uh, a machete thing because the uh, fake trailer in grindhouse worked out so well i'll just do that as a film because everyone wants the film and then i'm going to do like a quickie sort of like machete sequel and i i it's part of me that really loves that but part of me is kind of like desperado was sort of my childhood and El Mariachi, you know, I, I watched El Mariachi with my dad on my sofa. Um, Desperado was kind of like a real big deal for me. And I almost preferred Robert Rodriguez in the 90s to uh, Tarantino. Uh, it was just sort of like, 
it hit me at just the right angle where I was just like, yeah, this is it. I had a huge Desperado poster on my wall. I had the soundtrack. I just, I, 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 I mean, I, I loved Antonio Banderas in that film. Like, to the point where I gave Assassins a free pass because Antonio Banderas was in it. Yes. I was like, he's sort of got the same hair. And then you look back and you go, no, he doesn't. He's got curly hair in Assassins. He's got straight hair in Desperado. But, um, yeah, I, I just, I've got, I'll go back and I'll rewatch it because I've got a real soft spot for all of those films. And I, I basically, I basically do give Robert Rodriguez a sort of a free pass, but, um, but he, he hasn't done anything that I've really, really loved for a long time. But maybe it's just because I'm a lot older now, but I don't know. I'm exactly the same. I kind of, I like what he's doing and I like his enthusiasm. He like that he does everything on set. I like that he's there and he's so... He does it in his own garden. He's got Troublemaker Studios that's in his garden, you know. And he's got like this big warehouse where he does all the music and he does all the special effects. Uh, and I don't know if he still works with KMB uh, effects, but um, they did Army of Darkness and then they did From Dust Till Dawn. That's sort of like the, they progressed like that. And um, uh, yeah, it's kind of, uh, as soon as he started doing everything himself, then it, you kind of like go, oh yeah, maybe you shouldn't do everything yourself because then there was such a heavy reliance on CGI that nothing felt real anymore. So like, like he just like CGI squibs and stuff. And it's kind of like, yeah, I'm not sure about that. But, no, I um, totally agree. I, I, and I'm, I'm exactly the same. I love Desperado. I think Desperado is uh, one of the best action movies of the nineties, if not the best one. I think it's so well done, so inventive, so much fun, so exciting as a sort of cinema experience as well. I think it's, it was really incredible. And I don't think that necessarily translates to, seeing it on DVD when it had its sort of big audience. But I think it's a, I still think it's a great film. And so it's well. It's a cool together. film as well. It's a really cool film and it's got a really cool cast. And it's kind of like, um, I sort of was a little bit aware of Cheech and Chong beforehand, but like it was sort of my introductory to Cheech Marin. Um, and Quentin Tarantino's got a really good cameo in it. I just, I just and Danny Trejo is in it, and that was sort of like his like big kind of like showcase movie. Yeah. I think um, it's a really quotable film, but not enough people have seen it to know what you're talking about. Okay. I think. Do you think? Do you think it's not that popular? I don't know. It never seems like it. It sort of. I thought to me, it's it's a real. I think it's like one of the best films of the '90s, and yeah, I just don't know people that talk about it. I don't ever hear people talking about it. Um, but what I would go, going back to the Expendables, what I would say about that is um, there is only, the only dialogue in there that's quotable is because it's so terrible. There's a, there's a scene between Schwarzenegger, Willis and uh, Stallone, which is like, again, they've shot, they've, Schwarzenegger was the governor of California. He was available for one Sunday morning. They shot him out and then none of the dialogue sort of like, uh, like, fits together but on top of that it's sort of like really sort of like um stilted the way it's being edited that actually just makes it even more painful to watch and then um but but having said that i think expendables 2 is a good film and i think expendables 3 if they'd have started with expendables 3 then they would have been absolutely fine because expendables 3 it's not just a good film it's a really well-made film with a good story and fun characters and uh, funny dialogue. And it's kind of like it took them three films to actually nail it. So I'm not like slagging off the Expendables franchise, guys. 
I do like it, but you have to get through that first one. And, oh, wow. But he'd broken like, his ankle. He'd broke uh, a, a, a neck bone. <laughs> he'd broken his neck in a fight with Stone Cold Steve Austin that comes up near the end. And even in the, even in the shot, in that same scene when they're filming, there's a bit when someone says something to him and Stallone can't even look at him because he's in so much pain. And when you know he's broken his neck, it's just so... When you know it's going to happen, it's painful to watch it. And then the scene directly afterwards, they're all doing bants. And it's sort of like... And Stallone sort of, like, does sort of like this sideways look where he sort of, like, just, like, spits the dialogue out the side of his mouth. Well, you know, it's Stallone. But um, he sort of, like, spits the dialogue out the side of his mouth because he can't turn to even, like, say it to the, to the guy that's saying that he's talking to. Um and he had bronchitis, I think, at one point. Like, he was ill throughout the entire film. And they said, you can either stop production and lose the cast, or we'll just, we'll just literally put a metal clamp on your neck and we will inject you with so much drugs. And so he was sort of, like, writing, directing, editing, doing the music. He did everything. So when they did Expendables 2, he was just like, I'm not going to write it and I'm going to get Simon West to direct it, and I'm going to take a back seat. I'm sure he still had a huge hand in it, but he took a notable step back, because he got the franchise off the ground. He's like, I'm not doing that again. It's not my problem. Especially, especially thinking on your feet for the entire production, because uh, Jet Li's getting called uh, off to work, and Dolph Lundgren... I mean, Dolph Lundgren's hardly in it, and you think, I'm sure out of everyone, he must have had, like... <laughs> The, the least busy schedule, even though he's very busy and he's probably my favourite expendable. Um, yeah, I just. The guy we've met. The, he's one of our pals. One of the, he's, he's in the clubhouse. He's, he's in the fan club, fan club, fan club, clubhouse. Um, yeah, it's just such a. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an absolutely mental film from beginning to end. And if you're going to watch Expendables, May I recommend that you also watch Inferno, The Making of Expendables. It comes in the two-disc steelbook Expendables set. And Inferno, The Making of Expendables, is better than The Expendables. It's absolutely fascinating. The processes they went through, they're all aiming to make a masterpiece. And the film is just sort of like, it's just insane. I can completely understand why it's ended up the way it has. But it is absolutely insane. Mm. Anyway, it's time for a song. So play that guitar, Nathaniel. And we're back. We are back. Um, and uh, and what I meant to say earlier, and Nat has just reminded me, was that Nicky Rourke, Mickey Rourke was also in Once Upon a Time in Mexico. That is classic fan club. Um, I am really proud of that chat that we did because um, these, when we first started, we planned all the chats mm-hmm. a little bit. We had a little bit of like we had notes and stuff, and then we stopped doing that. And these are just sort of like what we would do in a pub, basically, is me and Nat would just talk. And we went from talking about, what is it called again? <laughs> ASMR. ASMR, to you talking about your haircut, to me talking about Mickey Rourke's hair in The Expendables, to us talking about 
Johnny Depp's hair in Once Upon a Time in Mexico, to Robert Rodriguez for ages, back to Expendables, and it's all tied together again. Absolutely. Like like a lovely ponytail. Um, so, so <laughs> like a play. It's like a play that we've written. Like a, if like you're a... watching, a, if this was a play, you'd go, well, that was a good play. Very satisfying narratively. It's you like... It's like Chekhov's gun in, uh, in, in conversation. Uh, and speaking of Chekhov's gun, um, you'd never guess what I started watching for the first time ever yesterday. I don't know. What was that? The original Star Trek series. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's on that ever. It's on... Well, I, I grew up with it on in the background, and I've always been a fan of the movies. The, not the... Not the next generation. I find that dull as shit. But um, uh, I am an absolute massive, even though I've met him and he was a bit of a dick, I'm an absolute massive William Shatner fan. Um, um, uh, And, you know, I've got vague memories of Star Trek when I was growing up, and I think we probably did watch watch episodes when um, uh, I was very little. But I just saw it was on Netflix and I wanted something that was sort of comforting. I guess it reminds me of my childhood. I wanted something comforting to watch. So I started watching uh, Star Trek just to knock me out. And I've watched the first four or five episodes. And every single one of them is an absolute banger. They're amazing. And obviously now it looks retro. But at the time it wasn't retro. It was just like what science fiction looked like. It's yeah. so good. It's so good. Oh, I've, when, I've, I haven't seen them for years and years and years, but I have really fond memories of them. And to the point where when people, like I think now, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure we have lots of, we've already established, we and Nick aren't big Star Trek fans, but I think we like the idea of it. But what I like about Star Trek is Kirk, Spock, Bones. That's what I like. I don't care really about the others. I don't the care holy, about the holy trinity. Them three, them three together. You got you got Kirk, who's kind of like macho and instinctive, but also caring, and he's guided by uh, the passion of Bones and the logic of Spock. And he's caught in the middle, and the three of them need each other to survive. Um, I love, I love those three. I, I, I love all the original cast. Ahura is so good in that first series. Um, I haven't got to the second or the third, but they're like, so we did our family quiz the other week and my sister said, um, uh, one of her clues was, it was about Star Trek and she said, it's a popular, long running, successful TV show. And I had to say, well, if you're talking about the original series, it wasn't that popular or long running. It only went for three series and then it was cancelled. And the hate that I got, from just sort of like, do you know what? You can live your life. You can live your life thinking that Star Trek was a runaway success the first time it came out. It wasn't until the films that it reignited it. And then... Um, the film only happened because they wanted something to uh, compete with Star Wars. So they got, well, what have we got? They said, what have we got? What have Paramount got that can compete with 20th Century Fox? They said, we want, uh, we want Star Wars. And they gave them a film that was more reminiscent of 2001 A Space Odyssey. They were gutted. Um... Uh, who was the director of that? It was the guy that did West Side Story, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was. I think it's Robert Wise. It was Robert Wise. There were th- there were three directors on West Side Story, I think, and he was one of them. Um, and uh, yeah, it's sort of like. And then, so it was when they rebooted it. Really, with Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan, and made it into this action franchise. Um, 
apparently it has half the budget of the first one as well. They just thought they weren't going to do it. The first one didn't do that well, but it did okay. And they went and they were, but then they were left with like a slot in the studio that was like, well, what should we make to fill this? And they were like, another Star Trek? And they're like, we're not putting that much money into another Star Trek. And they went, right, we'll just give them half the money. And so they've, it's just much more lean. It's like a much more lean movie, much more like they would have made as like a TV show. So like, um, so with um, the original series of Star Trek, the original three series, Khan appears um, and he gets sort of like uh, left on a planet and then Wrath of Khan is kind of like they're picking up a classic character from the original TV series and they're kind of like doing a sequel to it where Khan is full of uh, anger and revenge and all of this other stuff. And I thought that's great. But it's either episode three or episode four where there's an angry teenage boy who's basically got a hard on for uh, all of the women on the crew. And, um, uh, and he gets on board the ship. And basically, he's a petulant child. And every time someone says anything that he's upset with, uh, he kills them and he melts them and he does all this awful stuff. And eventually, they're like, uh, you've got all these adults that are on the on the uh, starship. Um, what do you call it? What's the Enterprise. Oh, the What's bridge. The, the bridge. They're all on the bridge. And there's this 17-year-old boy going, do you guys like me? I thought we were friends. And you've got, literally got Leonard McCoy who's standing there going, oh, I'm not your friend, kid. And um, it's kind of like they end up just abandoning him on a planet, right? And I think that that would have been a much better character to pick up on uh, uh, 15 years later. You've got a 17-year-old boy who's now in his 30s and he's sort of like bitter, he's got a beer gut, he's angry, he's still a bit of a pervert. And then, and then it's them sort of like encountering him again, going, oh no, I thought we got rid of this fucking kid. And he's sort of like, you know, he's trying to hang out with the crew. He's learned a few of his mistakes from the last time. You know, he just wants to be part of the gang. You know, a film like that. I mean, why not? I think, I think there's room for that in the future. If there's room for that in the future, let's do it. That's what Benedict Cumberbatch should have been. He should have been this angry, pervy kid that they'd abandoned years ago. It would have been brilliant. The role of a lifetime for him. Um, I think, like, and again, if you are Star Trek fans right in, I feel like Star Trek fans now don't even particularly like that iteration of Star Trek. They all seem to like Next Generation and that kind of era stuff. Next Generation is absolutely huge. I, I just think that at the time, I was into Quantum Leap, and I was just like, nah, I'll watch Quantum Leap, or I'll watch Sequest DSV even, which was a rip-off. It was an underwater ripoff of Next Generation, basically, and I loved I loved Sequest. And then, you know, because I was already in the water, that was my gateway into Baywatch. And then, <laughs> and then I started wanking. And then it was just like, am I going to watch Star Trek: Next Generation? I'm going to have a wank. I think I'll probably start wanking more. Um, and that's that was the decision that was made for me. Um, but although Beverly Crusher, whew, what, what, what am I saying? Um, uh, and Lieutenant Worf. Um, so, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I think that those original Star Trek episodes were great. The other thing that I've started watching again on Netflix, and I'm not really into TV series, I've gone on record as saying that, I prefer my entertainment in a two-hour, three-hour chunk, in and out, put the kettle on. But... <laughs> My uh, one of my favourite shows that I watched was a show called The Sinner, starring Bill Pullman. Did you ever watch that? 
No, no, I've seen it recently showing up on Netflix and things. The third series has just come out. Now, the first series, I think I watched in one day. Uh, um, I got tonsillitis, that's right. Me and my hairdresser girlfriend got tonsillitis and we were both stuck on the sofa and just eating ice cream. And we watched the whole of the first series of The Sinner in one day and the second series in the, the other day. Um, and so we did it all in one weekend. And then it's like two years later um, and uh, uh, we're not together anymore, but they're still making The Sinner. Um, so um, I, I'm, I'm well into it. But my main thing about it is I thought it was called The Sinner. Because basically there's a real, at the beginning of each series, there's a real brutal sort of like death slash murder slash mystery, right? And then Bill Pullman comes along and he has to sort it out. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, but isn't Bill Pullman the sinner? It's not the, it's not the, it's not the murderer, it's Bill Pullman. Bill Pullman is basically in the first series, he's sort of like into S&M and bondage and he's sort of like this sort of, um, he's a bit like a pervert cop that's kind of solving this mystery, but he's got like this dark kind of like secret and this dark past. And he was the set. And then in the second series, Jessica Beale was in the first series and then she produces and she produced it and then she produces all the others. Um, in the second series, they sort of drop the pervert thing and they do a thing where he's got like this estranged uh, relationship with his bipolar mum. And you go, okay, cool, but that's not really being a sinner. And in the third series, they don't mention it at all. And then you go, so why is it called The Sinner? Like, I thought that that was its selling point, that oh, it's a murder mystery series, but the, the main cop is this pervert man who sins, you know, in kind of like a religious way as opposed to a legal way, you know. Um, but um, so, uh, correct, so correct. I'm just throwing it out there, guys. If anyone's watching The Sinner, let me know because Nat is looking Not at me like deers in the fucking headlight. I've just don't know anything about The Sinner, isn't it? Which is why I keep talking. I just keep talking. Um, it, uh, like if you go from watching Bill Pullman in Sleepless in Seattle to going, seeing him get his heart ripped out by Meg Ryan, and then watching the first series of The Sinner where he's all like this pervert cop, right? Maybe that's you the origin almost, of the character. Yeah, you can imagine it's the same character. Absolutely. <laughs> or it's uh, the President of the United States, and it's like, what do you do now? What do you do now that you've uh, saved the world from an Independence Day? Become a pervy cop? Become a pervy cop! I am the sinner! That's, you know, it would have clarified if he'd had a catchphrase. And he'd slipped, <laughs> in. he'd slipped it in, no pun intended, slipped it in once an episode, and he'd gone, I am the sinner! He'd like, kick open a door and go, I'm the sinner! Um, <laughs> Bill Pullman is sort of like had a history of being sort of he's not Bill Paxton. Um, he's sort of like he's sort of like a, quite a bland sort of leading man. He's the other man, isn't he? I think um, he looks like Robin Williams. He's got Robin Williams's eyes and the face that. of Robert De Niro. I can see that. He is an absolute discovery in the cinema. Like I've always liked him because the space balls. And whenever he pops up and stuff, I'm always just like, it's Bill Pullman. But he's sort of like, as sort of like, in the best possible way, he's an everyman. Mm. And in The Sinner, it's this really nuanced, interesting performance. And every part of him is in pain. And, oh, he's incredible in it. I like Bill Pullman. Got a lot of time for him. 
He's like yeah. he's such an almost leading man. He never quite made it, but he's you know he should have been. He's 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 very good and everything. Just based on space force. I mean, <laughs> he should have. He should have absolutely. Yeah, but um, yeah, I love I love him. Um, uh, so I would recommend the sin. I've just started the third series, and I'm just getting into that. Also, here's another one. Um, I also watched this week the Rules of Attraction, which stars Jessica Biel amongst other people. There oh, what's the rules of attraction? Is that the American Psycho? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that sort one. Of Dennis. Yeah, yeah. Sort of. It's it's like a the brother of Patrick Bateman film. Yeah. Fan mail. I've not seen it, but there you go. Um, I just want to give a shout out to Megan Atwill, who um, has sent me a Pepsi Max Cherry uh, T-shirt in the post. Um, yeah. Sent it me ages ago. Sent it me at the beginning of lockdown, but. Um, uh, I was not up to date on my laundry cycle, so I wore it as soon as I got it out of the bag, and then uh, it's been at the bottom of a uh, laundry hamper, and then I washed it, and it's just dried, and I put it on today, and I'm like, oh, I'm doing fan club, so I'm just going to thank her, and then I'll take a photo, and I'll send it to you after. I think she's given up hope that I'm even going to reply to it, but I wanted to get it clean <laughs> so that I could... Uh, Make it presentable so I can wear it for you. So now we're going to do some fan mail. Okay. Although we've only got a very small amount of fan mail here and we've got seven minutes to fill. So, sure, by all means we'll do that. But this is, uh, I don't know. Play a long song. We can play a long song. Play the thong song. What? 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 Play the thong song. Hmm. Sure. Um... I hope you're doing great. I recently watched The Exorcist. I'm going to do it like Brian Johnson from ACDC, right? Oh, dear Nick and Nat, I hope you're doing great. I recently rewatched The Exorcist. What a great film. It's a shame that the sequels are so shit. What are your opinions on it? Do you believe in the whole real exorcism thing that happened on the set? Cheers, Charlie. The third Exorcist film was brilliant. Exorcist 3. I've only seen The Exorcist, I haven't seen the other two. I keep meaning, oh, really? I keep meaning to watch the third one, but I'm a completist and I don't, I've never wanted to get through the second one. The second um, one's mad, but I don't think it's... The second one's just weird that it exists. I don't think it's as bad as people say. I think it's weirdly quite watchable. It's kind of mad and it continues directly afterwards. So it is like watching more of The Exorcist. It's not... I, I, I don't think it's an unpleasurable experience. I think it's an unusual experience. Did you watch the two prequels? Yeah, I've seen them. They're rubbish. So that's Paul Schrader, who wrote and directed a, a prequel to The Exorcist. Paul Schrader of Taxi Driver fame. Mm-hmm. And then that made no money, so they took some footage and they re-edited it. Or was it the other way around? Yes. They thought, they thought it was terrible, so they let Rennie Harlan, the director of Cliffhanger, <laughs> they let Rennie Harlan... Ch- massacre the, the Exorcist Dominion. Dominion yeah. is, I think, the Paul Schrader one, and then there's another one called The Exorcist. Blah blah blah. blah yeah, the prequel to The Exorcist, and um, and so the Rennie Harlan wanted really badly. So then they kind of like did a release to the Snyder Cut, where Paul Schrader had to go at it, and that did equally bad, if not worse. But my favourite of any of the Exorcist franchise has to be. Repossessed, starring Linda Blair 
and Leslie Nielsen. And, of course, Ned Beatty. Oh, what's that, Brian? Well, you're going to have to be getting on with this fat meal if you're going to get through it all by the time the hour strikes. You're absolutely right, Brian. Hi, Nick and Matt. How are you doing? I'm, re- I'm currently running out of Mr. Documentaries to watch. Any suggestions? By the way, I'm five foot nine. So, Nick, could you please call me a cunt? Thanks, Massimo. You're a cunt, Massimo. Um, you five foot nine cunt, you? Um, <laughs> um, I, I would say, I think I was just about to say it, but I would say, honestly, The Sinner, once you're through all of that stuff, The Sinner is a really... Um, entertaining uh, series and you've got three series to get through I think there's eight episodes each and they're all about 45 minutes you can you can nail that in a weekend D-A-N-N-N lovely show what are your thoughts on kangaroos I think I would like to be one cheers Sebastian um, well I've got some thoughts on kangaroos I, I always think kangaroos look like they don't exist it's so weird that a kangaroo exists in the world and they've got, they've a, got a little pocket. pouch it's a wet pocket. Is it wet inside? Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. And I learned like... the hard way. <laughs> and they jump. It's mad. They are. They. They feel like fictional animals to me. I Only... almost can't believe they exist. Only in Australia. I don't think they can believe they exist. Which no. is why they're jumping around. Um, I have eaten kangaroo once. Um, it was, you know, it was salty. But uh, that must have been because of all the tears I was crying at the time. Hello, you pair of smashes! I'm still in the lockdown and finding that I go to the bathroom a lot more than usual. Sometimes up to 15 times a day. Oh, hang on. Hello, you pair of smashes! I'm still in the lockdown and finding that I go to the bathroom a lot more than usual. Sometimes up to 15 times a day with a lot of number twos. Is this normal? Thank you in advance, Gloria. Um... I don't know. It depends what normal was. It's a new normal, Gloria. How about that? <laughs> hey, Nicholas and Nathan. Your show is a wonderful romp through life. As it will be Christmas soon, I was wondering what your favourite Chrissy film is and would you like to go on a skiing trip? Keep on romping, Douglas. <laughs> um, I'm not going to... Not Christmas soon. I'm not, I'm not going to talk about Christmas. My favourite... My favourite... My favourite Chrissy film... It's got to be the John Carpenter movie, Christine. Joe! Oh, no, no. Uh, no, that's it. We're out. We're out of spam mail this week. Um, oh, I did have someone message me. Um, they messaged me um, on... Um, they messaged me on Instagram, and they were basically saying that um, all of my problems about uh, the wedding singer being mean uh, were debatable because... Um, uh, Adam Sandler was going through a breakdown at that point, and so he's allowed to be mean to the fat man. But I would say um, they did have a complete choice of who they were going to be mean to and why. And at the end of the day, they are depicting a man having a breakdown, um, uh, yet at the same time trying to be funny. And the funniest thing that they could think of to make that funny is to call a fat man fatty. So... I, I would I would counter-argue that, but feel free to keep the debate running. I mean, at the end of the day, it's just my opinion and how I felt when I watched it. Uh, and you're entitled to your opinion as well. And I don't want to take any joy away from the Adam Sandler classic, The Wedding Singer. But I also think um, they could have written anything, mate, and they chose to write that. Yeah. Right! 
So, we'll be back after this with a guest. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. And we're... And we're back! Uh, you're joining us back in the studio. We're not in a studio. Uh, you're joining uh, me, Nick Helm, and uh, also... Nathaniel Metcalf. And we're joined in the studio by uh, magician and breakdancer, uh, Magical Bones. Uh, uh, but I'm going to just call you Bones. That's all right, isn't it? Yeah, that's great. Great. Hello, how are you? I'm great, thank you. I'm uh, doing very good, enjoying the sun. It's a nice sunny day today. Uh, yeah, the guy outside my window's just started uh, mowing the lawn. So mm-hmm. if anyone complains about the noise, it's not my fault. It's the guy that's mowing the lawn. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Where are you in lockdown? Sorry? Where are you in lockdown? Or... I'm in uh, New Cross, South London. So New Cross, sort of just border between New Cross and Peckham. So, yeah. yeah. And are you from New Cross? Uh, yeah, I've lived here for um, pretty much five years now. So, yeah. Oh wow! I've always been in South London, South London, around New Cross Peckham area. So, have you ever lived in North London? Uh, briefly, I lived there for about a year or two. Yeah. Where did you live? Um, I lived in Islington. Oh right, yeah, cool. That's where I live. Sort of. I sort of say I live in Islington, but I don't. I live in Holloway Road. Yeah, that's even better. Isn't it? I mean, I'm an Arsenal fan, so anywhere near that area, I'm not too. Oh good. yeah, if I stand on tiptoes, I can see uh, Emirates Stadium out out my window. But I don't support football. Um, oh. When I first moved into my flat, I thought there was a train going by, but it wasn't. It was just the match. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so you are a break dancing magician and star of the West End Magic Show, Impossible. Right, so I saw Impossible, and that was advertised all over the underground when we were allowed on the underground. Um, how did you get involved in that? Um, I actually was doing um, my own stage show. It, they they do this festival. I mean, it's not this year, called the Underbelly Festival um, on the South Bank, just by the London Eye. And um, I was programmed to do my own magic show, which at the time was called the Slight of Dance. Um, and the producers from Impossible came to that show, watched the show, they were sitting in, the bought tickets, wasn't even aware, and they came up to me after and said, really liked your show, would you like to be one of the magicians in the brand new West End show? I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then that was it, we went on there, and then I was one of the magicians, and I toured with them for, we've been riding for about three years, um, we haven't done any more tours uh, as of recent, but yeah. So what? So there's you and uh, some. How many other magicians? Uh, there's usually between five, about five or six magicians. Like we had um, Richard Jones, who at the time was uh, had just recently won Britain's Got Talent, uh, was a winner for it. So he featured in the West End as well, just to sort of um, add more spice to it, I guess. Or maybe more ticket sales, I don't know. Was it, is it sort of like a rolling cast, or is it...? Uh, no, yeah, they, we, we, you can chop and... They do chop and change, but they're sort of the main staple magicians. They're usually the same four or five. Um, but it depends on availability. If we've got to go out in Dubai or someone's not available, they try and get another magician 
in as well. So you were doing, you were doing, um, it, what's the, is it Vault Festival? That's not the same thing, is it? Uh, as in for... When they, when they came to see you. That's it was Underbelly, right? Underbelly. Oh, sorry, Underbelly, yeah. Um, so they sort of, they, you were doing a show there and then they picked you out and then they uh, put you on at the West End and yeah. then they sent you around the world to do magic yeah. and they paid you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I was basically doing my job in an office and someone came in and said, do you want to be James Bond? And you go, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. And so in the show, you all come out and you do a bit yeah. And then, so you have sort of like a featured sort of moment, and then do you all come on and do something together? Yeah, we do. I mean, it's 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 sort of changed over the years. Originally, we sort of all did a bit where we all appeared um, at the top of the show, but they sort of kept it. It's simpler when you, if you have cast that drop in and drop out, it's sometimes a lot simpler to just keep each individual act separate. And then you don't have to have it too integrated. If someone is unavailable, uh, it sort of stops the flow of the show. Me, me and Nick come from a sort of stand-up background, and you have that thing, if you're doing a mixed bill night, you might have a thing where a certain person comes on first and does a certain type of joke, and you think, oh, well, maybe I'll not do that kind of thing. Yeah. Is that a similar thing with you? Do you have to, like, discuss it and work out, if you're doing this, this might be too similar to a trick I'm doing next or something? Does it work the same way? Yes, um, but with Impossible, um, what they're keen to do is they selected magicians that are very different. And, you know, there's not many magicians that sort of do my style of street magic, the way I brand it. Sort of a breakdancing magician. I don't think there's many yeah. in, in the world. Well, can do that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so so maybe, maybe a good way to sort of like start is to sort of, um, how would you describe your act? It's... Um, I'd say it's a, it, it's got like it's soulful magic. It's got hip hop infused magic, basically. So I like to incorporate a lot of hip hop, a lot of soul in elements. My background as a dancer in elements of a traditional magician, per se. So it's, it's that kind of flavor to it. Um, I'll do stuff like bat flips, windmills, and uh, I always add those elements in in my tricks when I'm performing. Just to because like, magicians are always like a sort of fascinating they're always like fascinating people and the impression I always get when I like read anything or read interviews with magicians it's always this thing where they're kind of like obsessive and to become a good magician you've got to just be obsessive about doing these tricks again and again and again and again and a lot of people probably started when they were little kids and they're kind of quite obsessed with doing the tricks and that's how you get good at it it's like years and years of doing this kind of obsessional tricks over and over again until you kind of uh you just perfect them right yeah, yeah I've, been, I've been doing some a lot of my staple routines have been i've been doing for over 20 years um i still do some of the i started magic when i was a little kid i was about 10 uh got a little poor daniel's magic set and then i'm fortunate enough to have my drama teacher he was a um he was a magician as well and he was a member of the magic circle so we all had like a talent show day and I came in and was doing some tricks and he encouraged a few of us to um, read certain books and pursue it uh, as a serious hobby. Um, so some of the tricks I do when I was a little kid, like banishing coins and 
you know, certain card tricks is, is literally from when I first started. From the Paul Daniels magic set? Uh, I don't actually do anything from Paul Daniels set. I mean, that triggered it. Um, no, I know. Yeah, but like, that's, I think that's how I got into comedy because I got the Jeremy Beadle prank set. And that, that had like a sticker <laughs> that you looked like a scratch that you stuck down the car. Everyone thought it was hilarious. And I thought, yeah, I'll make a career out of this. I <laughs> know um, I had that Paul Daniels magic set. Um, God, I wish. You didn't get the bug then? Well, I could have gone to Dubai if I'd stuck with it. That's a shame. <laughs> um, so when did you, so you start, you start, you started with magic at a young age. Well, I imagine that magic, um, if you compare it to comedy, I'd probably say it's probably got a little bit more in common with dance, would you say? Yeah, 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 yeah. So when did you, when did you first get into dance then, around the same time? No, so dancing was, so magic has always been a serious, geeky, sort of nerdy, obsessive hobby I've always done. And it was never really, it's just always sort of done it by myself and, maybe a few friends and family members. But dance was more when I started college. I started, um, you know, in the common room, practicing with friends and stuff. Um, and then then I started practicing out on the streets when we got chucked out of the common room. Uh, we actually used to, funny enough, used to dance by the South Bank, just by the London Eye. Um, and that's kind of how it all sort of kicked off, really. Just sort of used to just practice. And one day, one of my mates put a hat down um, just because. And, uh, you know, people started chucking coins in. And I'm like, oh, right, let's do it. we'll be here every, uh, <laughs> every day doing our training session. And it kicked off from there. And I started doing competitions, um, events. And during university, just got more and more serious into it and started casting, auditioning. And it just sort of picked up from there, really. You've worked with like big, big stars, right? You've worked with Madonna and people. Yeah. Madonna. How was Madonna? Madonna's very, she's very uh, nice, actually. Um, she's um, sort of, she's always surrounded by a sort of entourage of people that kind of sort of, I guess they sort of protect her. So, she, you, you know, she's very sociable and she'll talk to you and stuff. But then at the same time, there is this sort of, army of people around her just sort of protect her and stuff but she's she was really nice I, I really so so how did that how did that come about and tell us what it was like meeting her for the first time so one of my friends um so i had two friends that were dancing for madonna steve and norman and they were dancers in the hip-hop scene and um in the in a sort of underground battling scene and madonna's dancers she tends to pick some of them from these kind of underground battle scenes. It really, it, this sounds like a movie, but it's not. So she, <laughs> tends to, <laughs> she tends to sort of, you know, she likes to come to these cool things and see the real scene. So she used to, um, Stephen Norman would organize these sort of dance events for her, just in these underground clubs and stuff. But specifically uh, for her? Sorry? Specifically for her? Yeah. So, yeah, it would be sort of for Madonna and it would be this kind of private kind of thing. This is like in Zoolander when David Bowie goes to judge the um, the uh, underground male model thing. <laughs> it feels like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or, or it's like when uh, Michael Jackson used to shut down HMV so he could just go shopping. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And Hamleys as well. 
um yeah yeah it was it was it was it's was, it was a bit like it was surreal but it's it's kind of sounds a bit weird but when you're in that kind of dance world sort of normalized it's just like yeah you know i guess so because you probably have stuff in that world as well which might be like sponsored by like a big sports company or something so it's just a show like that right so it's for yeah. like a show that's been produced for like a company or for yeah so you should... madonna rather than like adidas or whatever it's like um it's just like a it's sort of like a sponsored show or something right? exactly yeah and a lot of the stuff is is sort of madonna's really cool so it's never really promoted it just kind of happens and you have to be one of the dancers that knows about these events that happen and get selected to be one of the performers in these kind of little underground things that happen and um and she was was she there yeah and did you know she was there uh yeah i knew yeah i mean yeah it's all it's all you're not meant to but yeah i knew and then you know you get you get to meet her and stuff and weren't you incredibly nervous um no do you know what i don't know if you guys any celebrities you've come across you know when you meet the thing about celebrities is that when you meet them in the typical format like when they're on stage and you know and they've got all the security and everything and in that sense it becomes a big deal but you know when you meet them outside of that there's this kind of normality it's just like i don't know you're just like oh Oh yeah, there's Madonna. Yeah, and then it's just sort of just normal. It's a, it's a weird kind of thing. Like I always find when I'm when I'm around celebrities, it's always when it's presented as this big thing and they have the entourage and there's all this like exclusivity that's attached to it. But then when you come around that, it's just like, oh yeah, man, I met Madonna and she's pretty cool and you know. And yeah, I, yeah. Now I can see that. Yeah. I don't. I don't. I I get starstruck by really weird people. Oh, really? <laughs> so I kind of like I because in, in comedy you sort of like end up meeting all of your heroes from when you were younger, and and it's kind of weird. But then you see them in a work context, so it's not that weird. Um, and then also living in London, you can be like walking through Soho, and then you'll walk past Ian McKellen, and you go, "Oh, it's Ian McKellen." And yeah, it's kind yeah. of like, and then you'll meet Bradley Walsh. And you'll be like, that's fucking nuts. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's always the people that you're not really expecting. Um, yeah. I quite, yeah, but I do, I do like it. I do, yeah. But I would have been, I would have been nervous. It's, it's funny, when I first met Will, Will I Am, um, I met Will I Am, this is years ago when he came and he was part of Black Eyed Peas and they weren't, um, they were big, but not that big yet. Now I'm a, obviously I'm breakdancer b-boy and we met we met uh we were big fans of this uh b-boy called b-boy crumbs every b-boy has like these kind of street names crumbs I'm called bones um and so we were in uh, Leicester Square and we were just outside the Hippodrome I don't know if you know where the Hippodrome uh-huh. so we bump into um me and my mate we bump into crumbs and we're like oh my God, there's B-Boy Crumbs. Like, wow, what are you doing? And he was at the time touring with Will I Am. Like, oh my God, B-Boy Crumbs. Like, oh, like, yo, like, how's it going? Blah, blah. And then Will I Am comes and we almost sort of, well, not almost, we sort of didn't care about Will I Am. Will I Am's like, <laughs> yo, hey, what's up? And sort of 
comes involved in the conversation is like what you're doing is say yeah i'm sort of performing for what i am and blah 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 oh hi will yeah and then i'm like you're so crumbs man like do you know what i mean and it was like after that little scenario it's just like wait is will i am's a star and he's just a backing dancer but we're sort of more amazed by yeah. crumbs being in the conversation Something quite similar years ago when, um <laughs> did you ever watch the tv show oz yeah 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 yeah, oz, yeah. Me and my friends were obsessed with us, and we used to go to the pub on a Thursday. We used to get comics every week, and New Comics Day was a Thursday. So we'd get comics, and we'd all go to the pub afterwards, and we'd chat. But basically, what we used to chat about was what happened in Oz the night before. <laughs> we were obsessed with it. Yeah. And uh, one day, at that pub, one Thursday, um, one of the actors from Oz, who played Simon Adebisi, was in yeah. on the table in the pub next to our table. And it was so bonkers because we that's all we talked about and it was like he'd come to the pub someone <laughs> off the telly had come to the pub and we were so excited but he wasn't like it's not like he was famous at the time or anything it yeah, was yeah. just that we were so we were up on the table we couldn't even talk to him we were just like we just we couldn't <laughs> we couldn't believe it but everyone else there was completely oblivious to the idea that and i think he was oblivious to the idea that on the table next to his table we were going Oh my God! It's animation. <laughs> yeah. Like we're so excited about it. I don't think he would have been oblivious to that. I did that in Edinburgh last year. When I first went to Edinburgh, I saw a comedian called JJ Whitehead at the Tron. And when I did my first solo show in Edinburgh, I did it at the Tron, like ten years after. And I was crossing the road in Edinburgh. This <laughs> the, the Edinburgh just gone. And JJ Whitehead was stood next to me. And I said, oh my God, JJ, how are you doing? And he was just like, I'm great. I said, oh, it's so good to see you. And the next <laughs> to him was Ed Byrne. And I went, oh, hi, Ed. And Ed was just like, fuck off, you know. Um, yeah, those are, it's, uh, maybe it's like scaled down a bit from your one, but um, good, one, <laughs> good one to end. I've never done I mean, so um, have you ever seen the film Now You See Me? Yes. Lovely. Now, uh, that must be quite difficult from the point of view of a magician to watch that and be um, uh, non-critical. Good question. Uh, for me, actually, I love that film because I actually feel like how magicians are, are in general aren't as cool as people think they are. Oh, they, I don't think they're cool. Oh. <laughs> I think, uh, I think, um... You didn't quit me now, I was like, yeah. I'm just too... Because I love the idea of magicians being that kind of obsessive thing. That's what I think of. Yeah. Well, major magicians, when you speak to normal people, apart from yourself, uh, they do tend to have this perception that magicians are really, really cool, and they're actually not. They're quite... quite Nerd, nerdy and obsessive and some of them are cool obviously you know David Blaine and and Darren Browns and and whatnot um but anyway the point I like about Now You See Me is that it still reinforces that um like that view that magicians are really cool that's you know we can just like some of the stuff is like it's it's just not how you would do it in the real world but it's like it's great because it it's what we should be but aiming towards and that's what i love about it like, like you know what, making money appear like um for the whole yeah. audience that's um, a great trick what about the bit when they put her in a bubble and she flies 
that's a great trick. I, I know, I know, I know from your perspective, it's like, okay, that's ridiculous. Like it's too over the top, but I actually think like, that's what magic happens in our minds. And that's what lay people think. And when I say lay, I mean, uh, normal, non mere mortals. Yeah. You know, if you could think of visualize what oh, it'd be, wouldn't it be cool if she could float in a bubble and, you know, or could you make a building vanish or, but how would you do it? How would I do it personally? Well, how would it, you can't just sort of like put someone in a bubble and then fly them over the entire audience, right? That's not a thing that's possible in the world of magic, right? Ah, uh, well, that's a difficult one to answer because in the, we we have a rule in magic where we say nothing is impossible. So, I mean, David Copperfield vanished the Statue of Liberty in the in the seventies. Um, you know, he's walked through the Great Wall of China. I mean, and you've seen the videos where his hair's like the wind is like moving his hair and he's flying in a flying carpet. In um, <laughs> I mean, it's it's possible that <laughs> David Copperfield can be flying <laughs> on a carpet with his hair through the wind and just gliding across the um, the mountains. <laughs> I think a bubble and um, it levitating the bubble is not too. We could we could achieve that. But if she was on wires, right? Sorry, I don't want to get stuck on this, right? But if she was on wires, yeah, the bubble wouldn't be able to make like a complete bubble around her, so it would burst, right? Yes. That's part of it, right? That's why. That's the magic. That's the magic. But how would they do it? No one's going to tell you how they would do it, Nick. I've been thinking about it for like (laughs) eight months, and I just can't work (laughs) out how they would have put her in a bubble and floated her in the real world. That's what we, we're going to have to do. We're going to have to work towards in the real world now. So Let's just... do it before the end of the show. Let's put Nick in a bubble <laughs> see if we can float him. I've been in a bubble. I've been in a bubble for four months. <laughs> yeah. So cool. So how so, did you start bringing in the magic to the dancing there? What was the, what was the kind of, how did that happen? Um, basically, so while I was on, on the streets and then, you know, on the streets. No, while I was um, uh, used to busk on, in, by the London Eye, we would, we, you meet so many people, so much talent on, 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 on the streets buskers. Some of the most talented people I've met in the world are actually street performers. And n- there's no rules, there's no limits. Nothing, we don't limit um, the possibility with, in terms of, we don't constr- we're not constrained to what typical performers do on stage. It's like, yeah, you can do, why not? be a breakdancing magician or a juggler and a, and a comedian or a juggler. Like, there's no such limit. So I got inspired by people that were doing all sorts of weird, random acts on the street, like so many random, weird stuff. And as a magician, people say, oh, why don't you do a little bit of, you, you're a magician, why don't you do a little bit of magic? Because before we start the show, so I would, like, get a, pa- a card and I'd vanish it and make it, like, have it in one hand, it vanish from that hand, I'd do a little wave and it reappear in the other hand call the crowd in and, you know, little um, David Blaine type levitations. And it just started progressing from there. We started adding these elements. And uh, I guess it's sort of tied change. I sort of did started doing more magic than uh, the dancing because it was, it was actually a lot easier than sort of spinning on your head every day. <laughs> <laughs> Back stunning. And you're like, no, nah, actually, I'll just do a couple of card tricks, actually, instead of that. Yeah. That then, and then it became a point where you moved that indoors, you moved that inside to venues and things. So would you be doing that on bills with other people or would it be, at what point would you be doing that kind of 
um, how do you get started really? And how do you go from doing stuff that's sort of busking rather to doing stuff in venues and things? How does that happen? That's a really good question because when I started doing, I remember all the other buskers around me. Uh, so I, I was really bold. And that one thing I love about the streets, it teaches you to be really bold. You don't care, just do it. So instead of raffing around and you, not, so when I say around, I'm not saying comedians raff around and do all these individual bills and stuff. Oh, they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. But what I did, I saved a little bit of money and in one, there was a theatre called uh, The Lost Theatre in Wandsworth. Yep. Saved a little bit of money and I just thought, you know what? Um, what the heck? I'm just going to pay, pay uh, for this theatre, book it out for a few hours and just invite uh, people to come see a show. And I just devised this, um, there was an hour show, which is told Blitz, uh, Facebook, with family and friends, and um, just create the show. And it was, it was terrible, the first one, but um, it was just something I just thought, let me just do. I just went out and did it. And um, I learned all the mistakes and it was, it was a great show, but you know, the, the production was all, it was a mess. The curtains was coming up as I'm, Preparing stuff that day, all the times is all off. But it's for family and friends, so um, they were still cheering along. And, and I did that show. I started doing that on a regular basis, and um, just making sure my family and friends come to to make sure I sell out. <laughs> so um, all thirty people would uh, <laughs> not checking there. Um, yeah, so it was just it was just me um, just doing that basically. Just started doing that, and then in the circuit meeting people. Sort of mingling. And when you say the circuit, is that like the comedy circuit? Are there like nights where you're going out and doing lots of magicians on the same night, um, or do it together? Do you mean there'll be a circuit where it'd be like a more variety circuit where you're on with a variety circuit? Um, you know, we we come into some of your you guys' world a little bit and do comedy magic, which annoys you guys. No, so not at all. More, magic, at all. more magic than comedy. <laughs> That's the no, I, think, I can see some people being like annoyed by that, but I can imagine they're just like, you know, I, I think that's just the sort of bitterness people come in. A lot of it, the job is to make people laugh, and you do that by whatever means you've got. You know, that's 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 how I'd see it. I, I, yeah, I think it's I think it's the same thing because I do I do music as well um, when I'm on stage, and um, and people hate musical comedians, so I always try and sort of like distance myself from. Well, I'm not a musical comedian. I'm a comedian that does music. But yeah. it's like it's it's like what you're saying. It's kind of like um, you play to your strengths. Well, like Steve Martin started off being a magician, yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, and then he basically made and he could play the banjo, and he could you know do surreal jokes, and then he could do like balloon animals, and so he just put everything that he did in one act. And he wasn't necessarily like a straight comedian because he did he did he did everything in his act. But it's literally if you play to all of your strengths then you can't really go wrong. It's when you start doing stuff that's out of your comfort zone that it's kind of like... Do you get that? But, but you, I'm sure you must have it if, in, in comedy because we don't have it in magic where everyone's sort of a bit bitchy and like, oh, um, you know, you're not really doing... Your, uh, uh, like, c comedy magicians is, is quite popular um, in our field. But um, the thing with comedy magicians, they're either not great magicians, so then it's a comedy act or they're not great comedians and uh, not great um, comedians. So then it's a magic act. And like, we always, there's always this kind of like mm, comedy. They don't really, 
Really I suppose. Yeah, I can imagine it. I can imagine that happening. I think I've always liked it. I just think it's like, I always think it's interesting, especially if I'm on a bill with someone who might be a magician or something, like, um, or doing something a bit different, because I just find it sort of, it's just more interesting for me to see, talk to someone else who does something a bit different. So I'm just fascinated by all this stuff, you know, all kinds of performances, all kind of, it all sort of, the more you can do, the better. If you're able to do everything, I'll be able to take ideas from one thing into another. It just makes your own stuff better, right? It's like, yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, that's just, I mean, I love everything. I love people who bring in all sorts of stuff into their act. And like, like you said, I think it just makes it more interesting, more personable to you. But we always have... Um, Moaners, don't we? <laughs> so. I would say that I would say that ninety-five percent of the comedians I've met in my life have been nice to my face, <laughs> and I am happy. I, I am happy with that. But I like to do like one-liners, and then I do stories, and I do poems and songs. And I just always thought there's a certain part of because I wrote poetry separately and I wrote songs separately. And then I did stand-up separately. And I think one day I had to do 20 minutes and I only had 15 minutes, so I put a song in. And so there's a certain amount of my act, which is like throwing shit at a wall and seeing what sticks. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, then, and I'm, a result, <laughs> I'm a result of that. I like it because it's what makes you original. I remember when I first, you know, said I'm a breakdance magician, like magicians, you know, initially frowned upon it. They were like, what's that? What would you do? Are you going to start backflipping or doing head spins and, and doing um, tricks? Which is actually what I do. But yeah. um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I go, all oh, right, I guess I could imagine that. Yeah, sure. yeah. But for me, isn't that like, that's what all magic is, right? Like David Blaine is the opposite of that. But what his kind of gimmick is that he's sort of totally dressed down and he's doing it without any gimmicks. Whereas you think of like even sort of Victorian magicians that come out and they might wear a turban with a jewel in because it's just, a, it's, it's like, it, it's their thing to show, oh, I'm different and I'm, I'm mystical and from this other, where it isn't, it's just like, that's the show, right? Yeah, it's yeah, just, exactly. Like, it's yeah. just putting on the show, it's putting on like uh, clothes which you kind of dress around the trick, right? To make people go, oh, what's this guy's deal? What's this kind of, and it's, it's like almost like magicians always seem to have like a niche or an angle, right? And yeah, even going back to Victorian times and all that kind of thing. Yeah, all the good ones have a, a, a niche and an angle and something about themselves that makes them stand out and original. Like Darren Brown's very cool. He's like, uh, you know, he's the first person that pioneered mind reading mental magic or mentalism. But then... Also, I saw Darren Brown do a show. I can't remember what the show was called, but it was just really scary. And it's kind of like, you, get, you know, you associate like magic with kind of like, um, you know, uh, being entertained and laughter and kind of like, oh, wow. But then, you know, you went, you went to that show and you came out going, that was fucking creepy, you know. And I think that, that you know, with, with what I do in my comedy, I try and make people leave a bit sad. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, whether deliberately or just because they just feel sorry for me. <laughs> but um, I think it's, I think, I think that that's, I think that's what being an entertainer is because you can go up on stage and you can just do the tricks and you can go up on stage and you can just do the jokes. 
and maybe just doing like one line is, is what is your unique selling point, but it is everything that you put around it that makes you, because it, it's sort of like all of your experiences, you're like a cement mixer, you know, and all of your experiences go into this cement mixer and it'll be unique for everyone. And then what comes out is kind of like what your act is. Yeah, 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 and no, I agree, I agree, and, I, and that's what, that's the one thing I don't actually worry about, because the, the thing I, I think I'm fortunate with is that I don't have to worry about creating something to be original, I just, I'm just me, so I just sort of like, the reason why I bring hip-hop or dance in my magic effects, or as much as I can, is because that's who I am, that's, that's what I know, I know about music, hip-hop and music and stuff like that, so it's genuine it's not a gimmick it's like a genuine interest yeah, and it's actually it's things you did anyway yeah and everybody has that you know everybody has the thing the weird you do music and the weird thing that makes them unique but i think in magic there's sort of like we do have these rules and how you got to do stuff and like some people just don't like stepping out of normality um but then how do you become original if you don't break the rules sometimes you know yeah but, yeah, and, but you can always you can always tell, you know. Um, there was maybe we talked about it the other week, but there was there was there was a comedian that would sort of like he would turn up and he'd be wearing a suit, and then one week he'd had a haircut, and then one week he was wearing a muscle vest, and it's just like the only thing you haven't changed is your material. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like <laughs> if you were staying true to what you. I, I went. To, I used to go and see. Well, I still do, but used to outside of lockdown. I used to go to see sort of like lots of um, heavy metal concerts and I used to go and see um, Alice Cooper and ACDC and Def Leppard and they all do like these huge spectacular light shows and when I started doing stand-up I started incorporating elements of that into what I did because that's what I was interested in and then people were like well we've not seen anything like this on on stage and you go you have but you're just looking on the wrong stages mm, you know? mm. it's kind of like taking all of your influences and then just sort of like um uh and all of your interests and all your uh passions and putting that into your work and and uh and what you want what you want to do and i think when it's um when you're trying to second guess what the audience wants then it comes across as sort of like fake and it doesn't work and it also works, uh, that's a great point, and it also helps you creativity, creatively-wise, because you don't have to, you, you know, when you oh, what's, someone says, oh, what's the next trick you're going to do, or what you're trying to create, sometimes when you can just think about what you do, your things you like, and blah, blah, you've got a really good starting block, um, because you've got like, oh, well, I can just do something around this, and instead of having to think about this, story i don't know if you've seen how many magic shows you've seen but there are a lot of magicians who come out of these stories that have nothing that connects them to that and sometimes that's good but you know if you're if you're doing a coin trick and you're talking about a story about you know you know fairies and blah and it's just it's, it's not relatable to why you're doing that it just then it doesn't feel original it just feels like you're just telling a story because you're just yeah telling a story. I saw a magician on a ferry about 10 years ago. Uh, and it was an overnight ferry, but there was sort of like, it was in quite a big room and there were about eight people dotted around this, like 300 seater. And there were some kids there and this guy comes out and I know his name. 
I remember everything about the act. And he came out to the Phantom of the Opera and he was wearing this cape and he had like this... No, he wasn't wearing a cape. He was wearing a blood-spattered straitjacket and a mask. And he came out with all of this bombastic music and um, he did sort of like this trick. And there were kids in the audience and they were sort of terrified, but you're in like a function room on a ferry, right? Uh, so he was making the best of it. And then he did this thing and he did this trick which probably took about five minutes. And at the end, he went, oh, yeah, how are you doing? <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then he started doing some absolutely completely different things. And so he sort of, like, he'd taken, like, five or six routines that he yeah. found, but he hadn't sort of meshed it together with one idea. It was just sort of like, well, I like the straitjacket and the horror thing, so I'll do that. But it had nothing to do with the bit when he was changing the colour of the records to yeah. the... You know, he'd pull out a red record and then they'd play red, red wine. And then he would pull out, he'd put it away and it would be, we all live in the yellow submarine. I'm blue, ba-da, ba-da, ba-da. And it I was actually like, know the trick you're talking about. I know when you talk about the records, the kind of changing vinyls, I know exactly what you're talking about. I mean, it was sort of like, you go, oh, wow, what has that got to do with the fact that you're wearing a blood spattered <laughs> straitjacket? It was absolutely insane. When you're talking about um, like comedian, and you were saying like comedy magicians who do a bit of one or a bit of the other, did you feel that there was a stigma against you when you started then to be like, were people, do you feel that people were looking at you and going, oh, this guy is like the breakdancing magician, but is he a good magician? Did you feel you were up, you had yeah, something yeah. to prove? Yeah, I got, I, got, I got a little bit of that when I um, started, because traditionally magic is very, very, um, can be very snobby. And like, you know, there's a, there's a sort of elite group. And like, I don't look like a typical magician. I never looked like a typical magician. Um, and I remember when I first met Dynamo for years, we were sort of outcasts in the typical magician, you know, with the books and your, you know, the cards. And they sit in these sort of, when you go to the conventions or you go to these things, they sit in these groups in these, it tends to be, you know, older men who are a bit well off and sort of really articulate card magic and they sit down and you know they sort of like sit in these groups and you you kind of feel like this like young well I was this young kid who was trying to like sort of peep and just be wanting to be invited onto that table and be like oh but it's like is this weird and like, you're not really meant to be part of this kind of group but then obviously David Blaine came out with street magic totally shattered that kind of idea of this sort of magician in the top hat and sort of Paul Daniels kind of look. And he sort of opened it up to more individuals who can, who just don't really fit that, you know, traditional bracket. Um, and yeah, and yeah, when I was started, people sort of thought, oh, it's a gimmick. You know, you, you do, you could do a bit of dancing and you, but you don't really know real card slides, coin slides and stuff. And actually, I was, I'm, I was like, no, I'm just as geek as you guys, actually. <laughs> but I'm, I'm outside of that, I also have a, a, a normal life. It's my whole life isn't just magic. I'm not obsessed completely with just magic. So I do like to go out and talk to people in the real world and not just sit in a room. But, it's all, but it's, that's, that just boils down to the fact that it's important when you're doing that. Um, is that the magic is good, but so is the dancing, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not like you're a magician 
and you're thinking, well, maybe if I did a bit of dancing around the tricks, then I can do it. Or you're a dancer and you go, well, maybe if I did put a couple of cards out my ass, that would impress people. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like you're good at the two things and you've combined them. You know, you could have had you could have, you could have had a career in either, mm. you know? but you've kind of like combined it to make something special. I, I, I spent a long time. It's taken a long time, years, years, and I still I still don't think I'm there trying to find the right effects that where the magic and the dance really do make sense and complement each other. So, you know, when I do the straight jacket escape and I do windmills, breakdance now of a straight jacket, it kind of, in a weird kind of way, that just feels, you see it and you go, yeah, that, that's cool. But it, and it's, yeah, that does, it doesn't look out of place. Sure. Um, or when you see me throw cards and do a backflip and catch one, it doesn't feel like, why is he doing that? That's, it just feels like, oh, that's cool. So I was, I, it's taken a long time to find those things that work naturally together. Um, not, so it's, for me, it's not just, you know, like when I, was, when I first started in the streets, it's like, pick a card, right. <laughs> do, <laughs> do a body pop in secret. Here's your card. No, um, <laughs> it's sort of really spending time trying to make it make sense if you know what I mean I guess that's the the good thing about all performance though it's just that you're never finished you're always yeah. the more you do it the more you're always going to get better at it so the idea is or do you feel like with the break dancing do you feel that there's a shelf life on that do you feel like will I be able to do this in 10 years or 15 years can I be like how fit am I going to be then that is actually that is uh something I do feel actually um I have been through moments where I'm like well, how long am I going to be doing this back to windmills and and stuff and you have to stay in shape so you, there is a shelf life to certain parts of the act I don't suspect I'll be able to do things in the next 10 years like I'm doing them now um but then that, that's all the part of evolution you know I started as a professional dancer evolved to a break dancer magician who knows what I'll become I might become a comedic dancing magician um you're saying before you you're you're 38 i'm saying i'm 41 and i've got to tell you i can't really do the backflips anymore i'm not, not <laughs> <laughs> when i three years ago nick will tell you i was on the stage doing backflips and all sorts but now with the comedy and backflips yeah, yeah. I, I can still do backflips i just choose not to <laughs> um, we didn't cover it but like in what capacity did you work with madonna did you go on tour with her no, I wasn't one of her touring dancers. So I did uh, a, a number of private events for her um, shows. Um, but no, I, I wasn't really, I've never really been a touring dancer. Um, I'm, a, I'm more of a I'm straight commercial music videos, uh, events, t uh, fashion shows, that kind of thing. Um, you know, I've done a few um, award shows, not for Madonna, but I've done some for Plan B, um, what did I do? Whitney, I can't bring up my old TV now, but yeah, I used to do that. I'm that kind of, I'm the kind of dancer you bring in to do the, you know, yeah, just do your head spin or do whatever you want to do. Um, but no, I'm not really like, like one of those routine backing guys. What's the weirdest job you've had? I did a, oh, what's her name? And ah, oh, what's this girl's name? She's a famous singer. That I don't know the name right now. Um, anyway, ah, uh, oh, it, it it will sound more weird when you know who the singer is. 
but she did a music video. I can't remember her name. And I was in in a banana costume. No, I'm really serious. I was in a banana. The, you know, did this whole audition, and then I and then afterwards, when the director was like, "Yeah, can you wear this banana costume and do this?" And I was like, "What?" And then I was like body popping in a banana costume for uh, I can't remember her name now. Um, it's not come to me but yeah that was one of the strangest things it's like why waste time like making us do this intense audition to put us in the banana (laughs) (laughs) just like body popping what really weird really weird are you like a member of the magic circle or anything like that now are you yeah yeah member of the magic circle and is that because that always feels like a weird kind of almost like the masons or something like a secret society did it feel like that when you're part of it or is it much more like i just it's just so it, it, was, it was it was a part of it it was like that i think now we're trying manic circles trying to open up and be more um inclusive they're trying to reach out more because like i said it was quite elitist before it was part of this mason thing you could only come in with uh, a blazer or a shirt tie now that you know they want more younger magicians more more representation you know females um and people from different backgrounds so uh, you go in a circle now and it's not as, as uh, it's not like that anymore. It's a bit more open. There's a much more younger demographic in there and uh, people coming with different ideas. So, yeah, it's cool now. Is it like, I mean, again, this might be quite an old fashioned idea of it, but I know certainly in comedy where your material is kind of key, it's what you've written and things. That's what, and I, was there a thing in magic about like the patter people use and things is that, and was that, their own pattern or was their kind of like go-to when you when you'd like have a trick with the <laughs> part of it or is that what you're there to create yourself around the trick you should be creating your own scripts around your magic i mean if you're just getting stuff like we sell magicians sell effects to each other mm-hmm. uh, ideas and stuff and sometimes those effects that you're selling will come with a script to say oh, okay here's how you do this trick and here's that type of script you could say with it but if you're doing that, then, I mean, there's no fun in that. You so it's like the good magicians write their own pattern and write absolutely. this stuff around there. And it's just like, it's just similar to comedy. A brilliant line you say can change the whole, the whole trick, basically. Just that one line or those couple of lines and you said this bit, it's like, oh, that was, that's genius. Yeah. Um, but then if somebody writes a joke for you and you get a big laugh off it, you feel hollow and empty. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and um, well, people do that. We do that in magic. We do. You, you can get people. You can get people. You know, just reciting a trick that they've just bought from another magician, and it's just kind of like, mm, nah. is that is that kind of how people start out, and they sort of develop more the kind of persona and all the kind of the the other stuff that goes around it. As I say, like. I don't know if that's the right term, but almost like I keep thinking of like the clothes you put around the trick or whatever you do. That's yeah. I mean, originally when it started before the internet exploded, before even DVDs, originally it was magic was very, very secretive. And it was only a select number of people that would do it because it was all books. I don't think people have heard of that anymore. Uh, (laughs) But (laughs) everybody's on the YouTube, YouTube trying to find out, but all the best stuff is actually in books. And it was extremely difficult to learn slights and stuff and the the beauty of that is that you had everyone interpreting 
the, the way someone was describing something differently. So everyone was creating all these ideas just differently because they're, they're reading, you know, oh, is that, yeah, this being place here, oh, okay, I'll do it like this. And this is what I'll say when I do that to mask this move. And you just, in those days, you just had so much originality. Whereas now you'll get like instructional DVDs, um, gifted <laughs> Yeah, because I, I remember I had sort of like uh, magic books when I was when I was younger, and those diagrams were almost like impossible <laughs> to follow. Yeah, people hated that. People were like, "Oh, this isn't." You look at it and you read it, so it's like a chemistry lesson or something. So you just sort of put it down, and um, it's only the true geeky ones that persevered and were like, "Yeah, okay, what's that?" And then if you're lucky enough to have someone who's a mentor, which I was fortunate enough, they say, "No, that's." how you do this and blah 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 and it's sort of like that who was your um favorite uh, magician when you were growing up then uh david blaine without a shadow of a doubt david blaine is for me i think david blaine is is the best in the game i think he's he revolution like <clears throat> you know i think david blaine is our equivalent of houdini personally i think he came in with this idea of street magic and so many things uh come off the back of that. I know David Copperfield is another great, so I don't want to sort of... No, saying you've got a favourite doesn't mean everyone else is shit. Yeah, but I think he... <laughs> I think he's he's done something that he changed the way magic was performed. Traditionally, magic was all about the performer on the stage, and what he did is he went out with the camera and flipped it and made it about... Instead of having, you know, David Copperfield you know, levitating on whatever. He flipped the camera and said, no, let's see how the audience react. And we loved watching, you know, when he was in New York and you see people run away from just simple card tricks. And that's what, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and people were like, oh my God, no. Like sprinting, you know, it's like. I, I think but, it's great. I think it's, I think he's almost underrated now, the way yeah. people talk about him. It's that sort of, or people go, oh, it's mad. It's mad what he does. And it's, and it's like, but that's it. That's sort of like, that again, like that's his clothes, right? Is to yeah. be like he's making you think he's doing something like mystical or actually like real magic. Where it's like that's his thing is that he's making you well, think that he's, he's doing actually something. pushed himself, uh, pushed the boundaries now in the sense that like Blaine is um, Blaine has really, really pushed the, the 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 boundaries in the sense of like traditionally magic was um, you know like when you said real. Um, half of the stuff that Blaine actually does is actually real. So he's really, you know, taking frogs out of his mouth and stuff. He's really um, putting a needle through his arm. And that's the beauty of it. It's so crazy because he spent, you know, decades learning those skills. And they're really these side, old sideshow side stunts that no one does. Um, yeah, so he's done all these weird sideshow stunts. Um, and um yeah and that's and that's what's um made him um blow up basically one of the things is that people don't actually appreciate is like he he's got to the stage where he's act what he's actually doing now is almost is real so it's like I mean, he, he has this uh, uh, uh series uh, this episode this special called um real or magic and i think it's i think it's one of his best specials because what he's doing is so he's pushed his body to so many limits that that alone is amazing and it because he's also a magician it makes you question well 
is he using magic to do that or is it real? And I like that sort of people not even knowing when it's real. Yeah. There's this clip with Ricky J. Uh, is it Ricky J. Gervais? Where he sort of takes this needle, thick needle, and he puts it through his arm. And Ricky Gervais can't work out whether it's actually a trick or is he just sticking a needle through his arm? Yeah. <laughs> and it's just this funny scene where he's like, no, you've just stuck a needle through your arm. <laughs> <laughs> Was that the series where he went around Harrison Ford's house? And yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. up an orange and he got his card out and Harrison yeah, yeah, Ford yeah. Get, went, get the fuck out of my house. funny. Um, yeah, that's amazing. I think we've come to the end of our chat. Um, could you uh, please uh, give a shout out to my dad um, because uh, he loves magic and uh, I, I call him Tony Magic Helm. So could you just say hello to my dad, please? Hello, Tony Magic Helm, um, or to uh, Nick's dad. Um, you are awesome, and uh, it's Magical Bones here, and um, peace, love, and happiness, and all that other good stuff. Well, I think you should consider changing your name to Lovely Bones. Um, Lovely Bones. <laughs> oh, um, if it was a balloon that was filled with helium... And she could learn to breathe inside of that, then that might be a way. Yes, that is. Actually, there is a trick where someone gets in the balloon, actually. I've seen it. Filled with helium? Not filled with helium, no. Um, but I've seen a, a, a very, I've seen a few people try and get in balloons. Um, um, you train yourself to breathe helium. Yeah. That's, uh, Typical. Anyway, uh, th- <laughs> thanks for coming on. Um, we're gonna, I'm going to hand you over to Nat now, and he's going to play a game with you. Okay, this is the game, uh, Bones. It's called Better or Worse, and you're going to have to say whether the next person on this list is better or worse than the person before it, based entirely on my own opinion, to score points. Okay. Beginning with Carrie Fisher. Is Salma Hayek better or worse than Carrie Fisher? Worse. Worse. Correct. I can't, though. Is Eddie Murphy better or worse than Salma Hayek? Better. 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 Is Eddie Redmayne better or worse than Eddie Murphy? Worse. Worse. (laughs) Is Patrick Stewart better or worse than Eddie Redmayne? Better. Better. No, better, yeah. Yes. (laughs) Is James Stewart better or worse than Patrick Stewart? James Stewart. Oh, better. Uh, better. I don't know who James Stewart is. Um, oh, yeah, but he is better. Better, yeah. Anyway, James McAvoy, better or worse than James Stewart? Worse. Better. Worse. worse. He is worse. James Cameron, better or worse than James McAvoy? Better. 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 Cameron Diaz, better or worse than James Cameron? Worse. <laughs> um, <laughs> Orson Welles, better or worse than Cameron Diaz? Better. Uh, better. Better. Right. Christian Bale, better or worse than Orson Welles? Worse. Uh, oh, no, worse. Uh, yeah, worse, worse, of course, yeah. Worse. Of course, yeah. I got a ten! I got a ten! I got ten! You got an eight, Bones. You got an eight. You got an eight. I mean, you did well, too, but I got a fucking ten. Um... <laughs> 
So you got. I, a, I, I'm a magician, not a mind reader. That's the thing. Sure, 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 sure. <laughs> I, I got ten, mate. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a musical comedian. Um, so uh, you got an eight. So you're uh, not quite as good as Jason Manford with ten. <laughs> Harry Hill and Luke Morley with nine. But you're as good as Susie fucking Dent with eight. And you're better than Henry Normal and Johnny Vegas with seven. So you've absolutely smashed. That's pretty good. It's a pretty good score. You're you're doing gigs over Zoom now, right? While we're in lockdown and things. Yeah, so. yeah, doing magic over Zoom, yeah. So, um, where can we find that then? So you can go on my website. Um, I, I, we, I, I was doing a number of ticketed events um, in conjunction with theatres, so we will be doing one again probably around August. But also, if you wanted some private events and shows and stuff, if you've got birthdays, and I'm available for birthdays and um, <laughs> and um, weddings, anniversaries, I can do um, you know 35 minutes over Zoom and just, you can tell your families, get drinks and it's, it's a lot of fun. That's amazing. Thank you very much. Um, my doing. name has been uh, Nick Helm and I've been presenting with <laughs> Daniel Metcalf and we've been talking to Magical Bones. Magical Bones, welcome to the clubhouse. That's, that's fan club thanks everyone for listening send in your fan mail and we'll talk to you again next week thank you Because I swear God, if I quickly tell you back